This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Laura Souter and you're listening to the Money and Markets podcast. Schools have now reopened, more businesses are starting to get back into actual physical offices and markets are also getting a lot busier, so we've got lots of news out this week. We're going to be looking at what's happening in markets more broadly, including the large swathe of companies that are talking about rising prices and supply chain issues. Danny Hewson's joining me today and she'll be talking about the latest job figures as well that were out this week. Hi, Laura. Yes, those figures tie in well with lots of other data that we've had out this week, looking at how the fortunes of Brits were really divided during the pandemic. Also on later today, we've got Tom Selby tackling a question about cashing all your pensions in one go. Jenny Owens back with an insanely priced beach hut. And Dan Coatsworth will be talking to a well-known fund manager about how small companies are faring at the moment. So as ever, lots of great stuff to get through. But let's start with today's inflation news. So as we're recording this on Wednesday, this morning we saw the latest figures for August, which showed us the largest monthly leap in inflation since records began. So the CPI measure of inflation is now 3.2%. There's lots of reasons for this. The first is a bit of a kind of data anomaly um, in a way in that the restaurant and cafe sector this time last year had the eat out to help out scheme which I'm sure lots of people remember giving you discounts on um, food and drink so that means that if we compare this August prices to last year this year looks artificially higher Um, but we've also seen lots of genuine price rises so we've seen petrol prices rise they're now about 20p a litre more than they were last year. Um, And we've also seen the ongoing prices in the second-hand car market, which we've talked about a lot before. And then finally, we've also got the supply chain and shipping issues that we've talked about loads on the podcast has led to the largest rise in food prices since 2008, when many will remember that we were in the depths of a recession at that point. So all of this put together means that costs are rising, which means inflation is up. So, Danny, how did markets react to that news? Well, there was split, actually, Laura. We had the blue chip FTSE 100 making back a little bit of the ground that it lost yesterday after US inflation figures came out. But the domestically focused FTSE 250 was hurting by lunchtime on Wednesday, just before we recorded this. And that's probably because a lot of the gains that we're seeing on the FTSE 100 were really big defensive names like tobacco giant Imperial Brands. We had the catering firm Compass and consumer goods maker Reckitt Benkheiser. Now, big brands, these can either swallow some of the additional costs or, or when it comes to brands like these that we know and love, they're the names that often find it easier to pass on cost increases to the consumer. And price pressures really have been the name of the game this week, with barely any company reporting results not drawing attention to supply chain issues. We had a straight trading statement from train maker Hornby, which said that they were mindful of potential supply disruption in the run-up to Christmas, sticking with toys Character, which is known for brands like Peppa Pig and Fireman Sam, well, it saw shares fall quite a lot, actually, after it downgraded earnings guidance due to a combination of 
supply chain disruption and rising costs. Red Row, the house builder, stonking results, but again saying that despite the fact that they have managed to mitigate the effect of material shortages so far, they said that they were mindful of supply issues going forward. And Fivitri, the posh tonic maker, yes, you guessed it, they were also talking about supply chain issues. Now, this shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone because, you know, Q1, we had Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Ford, just to name a few, big manufacturers, all warning of price rises down the line because of supply disruption. They were saying this at the end of Q1, saying that if bottlenecks didn't work their way through by the autumn, they would have to start putting up prices. Well, here we are in the autumn. And frankly, we are still talking about those supply snarl-ups. And consumers now really starting to feel that filtering through. Market researcher Cantar put out some figures on Tuesday, which showed that the cost of groceries in UK supermarkets had risen on average 1.3% over the last four weeks. Now, of course, that does depend on what you put in your basket because you might have found you've been stung for an awful lot more than that if you've got cat food and boxed cake goodies in there because they're really delivering some of the biggest price tags. And there's another big cost pressure which is really hurtling down the tracks towards all of us. And that is those rising energy prices, the wholesale electricity price, the amount, of course, that our suppliers pay before they send it on to us. Well, that hit a new record high today. So between seven and eight tonight, that is the highest price that uh, they've had to pay for wholesale electricity prices. And you've also got gas prices in Europe in the same boat. Just, of course, as we all start thinking about flipping the heating on, which, of course, gives my husband an awful lot of ammunition to say, put on a woolly hat, stick on an extra jumper. We can't turn the thermostat up just yet. But, Laura, things are going to get really tight for consumers, not just here, but also in the United States, because although inflation was very slightly, and I mean a tiny bit cooler than had been predicted, at 5.3% or 4% for core CPI, which I suppose makes the UK's 3.2% look a little less frightening. But the thing with yesterday's US figures is that although there is a lot of data there which does back up that transitory argument, there's also been an increase in the number of sectors feeling the burn. And before we move on, I'm just going to talk as well about the UK government's winter plan, because it is fair to say that the travel sector was hoping for a bit more meat on the bone, but it's going to have to wait till the 1st of October for a blueprint. It has really struggled and it was no surprise to see both EasyJet and British Airways owner IAG among the companies taking the biggest hit on Tuesday evening. EasyJet investors, of course, having to get to grips with a £1.2 billion rights issue a lot of speculation that IAG will have to follow suit. And EasyJet, this was the thing that got a lot of people talking. It said that its recovery would lag some of its competitors like Ryanair and Wizz Air. Of course, Wizz Air made that rejected takeover offer for EasyJet. But EasyJet said that's because travel in Europe's picked up more quickly than in the UK because of ongoing UK restrictions. And Heathrow said earlier this week, 
it slipped down from being Europe's biggest airport to just number 10 because of the same reason. So the end of traffic lights, requirements for costly PCR tests, if they disappear, well, that'd be very welcome indeed. And so also in the deluge of data that we had this week, we had the latest job news as well, didn't we? So that showed that the number of vacancies in the three months to August rose above 1 million for the first time since records began in 2001, which is a dramatic leap, a record beating week, but maybe not always for the good reasons. So Danny, that's leading to a talk of a kind of hiring crisis in the coming months. Is that something businesses are talking about in their market updates? Yeah, we've heard from an awful lot of businesses. Um, Hospitality sector were the first ones really to start crying that they were going to be in trouble because, of course, you know, they... They weren't able to get back on their feet as quickly as some sectors. They had to let quite a lot of staff go. Maybe they didn't hang on to them on furlough. And some restaurants are talking about now having to limit the hours that they operate. Now, as you say, a million vacancies, you know, that is a lot of companies desperate for staff just to do the jobs. We've heard from fruit farms, laundry services, and pretty much every business that needs HGV drivers that things are really tough out there. In fact, I had to get an early taxi this morning and my taxi driver said he just didn't have enough hours in the day to deal with all the work that was coming in because so many people got out of that business when COVID ground everything to a halt. It really put the jobs market into a blender on high speed. We know that there are around one and a half million people, according to the Office for National Statistics, still on furlough back in August either full or part-time. But Laura, there's no guarantee, even if they don't have a job to go back to and they're looking for work, that they'll either be in the right geographical location or have the right skills to do the jobs available. And I've heard a number of businesses saying that they're considering applications from people who've got nowhere near the skills that they need right now because they're prepared to train them up because they just don't have enough bums on seats and that's costing them. You know, Ocado said yesterday that it was expecting to take a five million pound hit because it was having to pay HGV drivers more or having to fork out big signing on bonuses just to make sure that it could do the job. And Morrison's warned that that HGV driver shortage was adding to prices and had been for quite a while and warned consumers that they'd have to start passing those increased costs on. So there we go, full circle, right back to inflation. But those rising wages might make rising prices easier to deal with. But despite the fact that those jobs figures showed that the average wage has gone up by over 6% since the start of the pandemic, of course, that doesn't mean everyone has had a 6% pay rise. And for some people, the next few months are going to require some really careful calculations. And that kind of divided nation issue is something that we've seen and also talked about a lot in the pandemic. And we had some really good data out this week from the ONS, so the Office for National Statistics, looking at how everyone's own personal finances fared in the pandemic. And so when you look at that, there's average figures of what people saved, what they spent and what they earned. And they paint one picture. But the reality is that if you dig down into that, there's a huge divide between how the highest earners fared and the lowest earners. So the highest earners were most likely to be able to keep their job during the pandemic. They typically work in jobs where they could work from home, so they also weren't furloughed so much. And that means that their income wasn't here. 
And then if you compare that to those in the lowest income households, just over two fifths of low income households saw their income fall. And that's either because they were furloughed or because they lost their job or because they had reduced hours. And in fact, those earning less than £20,000 were three times as likely to be furloughed in the first lockdown than higher earners. And so we see that divide in how people's incomes were affected, but this also extends to how people's spending patterns were affected. So the amount that different families could save by spending less um, really varied across the income spectrum as well. The average household reduced their weekly spending by about a fifth during the pandemic. But actually, if we split that out into the lowest and highest income households, the lowest income households saw a 13% fall in their spending, while the high earners cut their spending by 21%. And that's generally because wealthier households tend to spend more of their money on things like travel, eating out, hotels, and other social activities. And all of those were off the cards during the pandemic. And so a really interesting fact that hit home for a holiday lover as myself is that holidays actually accounted for half of wealthier families reduced spending in the pandemic. Um, So it's interesting to see how different households would have fared during this time. And it's not just down wealth lines either. Um, The figures showed a really stark difference across the age spectrum. Younger people were hit much harder during the pandemic. They were much more likely to be furloughed or see their income fall, but also they had less savings to fall back on. So were more likely to have to take on debt. To, to get by and to pay bills um, than older people who've obviously had much more time in their working life to build up savings that they could then use. So I, I remember right as we were sort of coming out of that first lockdown and talking about recovery, all this talk about a K-shaped recovery, Laura, and th- this is going to set that sort of divide between the haves and the have not back considerably. Yeah. And so what we're going to see is that different families are coming out of the pandemic in very different shape. Uh, Some will have loads of savings that they've built up in this time and they're ready to get out there and spend and enjoy that money. Or they've put away a lot for the future and they're now much better set up for, um, for their retirement or for later in life. And then we've got others who are still trying to pay off the debt that they've built up in the pandemic. And obviously, all of that has a big economic impact as well in terms of people's ability to spend um, and their ability to um, carry on earning as well. Let's take a break from all the figures for a minute. We've got Tom Selby with us to answer the latest question sent to us by a listener. Don't forget, if you do want to send in a question on pensions or actually anything else, do email podcast at ajbell.co.uk. So, Tom, this week someone is asking whether they can cash out of all of their pensions in one go when they hit the age of 55. Their logic is that they don't really trust pensions and so they would rather have their hands on the money to manage themselves. So what's the answer? Okay, thanks, Laura. So it's quite quite a common question. So I'll split it up into two, if you don't mind, whether whether or not you can do this and whether or not it's something that you should be thinking about doing. So in terms of whether you can cash out your pension, it depends on what type of pension we're talking about. So if we start with the state pension, that pays you an income when you reach the state pension age, and there's no mechanism in the system to cash out that money. So you can only take it as an income from state pension age at the earliest. If you look at defined contribution pensions, so that's where your retirement pot is invested in assets like stocks and bonds and things like that, 
That can be accessed from age 55 with a quarter available tax-free and the rest taxed in the same way as income. Now, once you reach age 55, you have total flexibility of how, over how you spend your money and the age at which you can access your defined contribution pension. So their pensions like SIPs is due to increase to 57 in 2028, although those are proposals that aren't in law as yet. Now, if we move on to defined benefit pensions, so they're pensions where you're paid a retirement income guaranteed by your employer, usually based on the number of years you've been a member of the scheme, you can't directly cash those out. But if it's what's called a a funded scheme, so a scheme with assets sat behind it, it's possible to transfer to a defined contribution scheme from your defined benefit scheme and then access the money flexibly from age 55. And of course, that's increasing to age 57 in 2028. Now, in terms of defined benefit schemes, they're really valuable. So you shouldn't take the decision to transfer out of them lightly if you want that extra flexibility. If you are transferring a DB pension worth more than £30,000, then you'll need to speak to a regulated financial advisor first before you do it. That's a a protection that was put in place alongside the, the introduction of these defined contribution flexibilities way back in 2015. And just to just to round off the different types of pensions, so annuities, so if you've got an annuity, that's where you buy a guaranteed income for life from an insurance company, then they can't usually be directly cashed out. So if you've got an annuity that or you're thinking of buying an annuity, then that's a one and done decision and, and you won't be able to turn that money back into cash if you need it. So that kind of covers the whether you can or not. Mm. So let's get on to the second part of the question, which is whether you actually should cash them in. Yeah, so this this is the important bit, really. So just just because you can do something in, in anything in life doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And cashing out your entire retirement pot as soon as you can do it comes with various health warnings. So first of all, because 75% of your withdrawal is taxed in the same way as income with a quarter being tax-free, on that 75%, you might push yourself into a higher tax bracket and pay more to the taxman than is necessary. So if you're taking out, say, £50,000, £60,000, then you may push yourself into paying 40% tax when by drip feeding it, you could pay 20% tax or indeed even no tax at all if it's within the personal allowance. Another consequence of cashing out your entire pension pot will be that you'll trigger what's called the Money Purchase Annual Allowance or MPAA. That's something we've talked about on the podcast before. So that means that the maximum you can save each year in a pension will fall from £40,000 to just £4,000. So you'll really be restricting your ability to build up a pension if you take taxable income from your pension pot. You also need to think about the fact that you're going to be moving your money from a world where things like capital gains tax and inheritance tax don't usually apply to one where they do. And in fact, one of the big problems with people cashing out pensions is that they just shove the money into a bank account paying little or no interest and that money could be eaten away by inflation. Uh, Now, I mentioned a little bit about inheritance tax. So you need to remember that defined contribution pensions are now also extremely tax efficient on death and can be inherited tax-free if you die before age 75. By contrast, if you move the money out of a pension, then that money is likely to be subject to inheritance tax and form part of your estate. 
Now, more, more broadly, I know there's a lot of points to cover here, but I think it's quite important. You need to think about the fact that if you're taking out loads of your pension early, then how are you going to fund your later life? So someone who's age 55, for example, might have 40 years or more to live. And so if they cash out all the money now, and certainly if they spend all the money now, then they need to think about what's going to be left when they're in their 80s, 90s, or even if they celebrate their 100th birthday. Um, And one final point on the point of trust, which Christopher mentioned in his question, lots of people make irrational decisions around pensions because they don't trust the brand name. Now, that's entirely understandable, I think, for people who have been affected by things like the the Maxwell scandal and Daily Mirror and the Equitable Life scandal of the 90s, of course. I think the brand name of pensions have been really damaged by those by those events. But if you look at pensions in 2021, they're heavily regulated. There's compensation schemes out there if things go wrong. They're tax efficient and they're they're products that you should be able to have confidence in now. Thank you, Tom. Don't forget, of course, if you do have any questions for Tom or, as we say, for anybody here on the AJ Bell podcast, do get in touch. Email podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Now let's move on to our expert interview this week. Fund manager Richard Penny has developed a knack of spotting investment opportunities among lesser known companies over the years now. Running the Crux UK Special Situations Fund, he spoke to Dan about what's currently going on in the market and a few stocks that are grabbing his attention. So, hi, Richard. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Hello. Good morning. So, lots of big companies have bounced back from the pandemic, so there's not quite as many bargains as we saw last year. Does that mean that you're finding harder to spot opportunities in the market now? I think I think you're right. It is harder to find opportunities in the larger companies, um, but we have a sort of multi-cap uh, bias, so we buy mid-cap and smaller companies. And I think um, we, we are finding some of those large-cap names, so the likes of AB Foods, Prudential Aviva. We still see good upside there, um, but actually, there's there's still quite a lot of value left in the in the smaller mid-caps, and that's quite quite a textbook recovery where. It's kind of a macro market year one where the big, big obvious stocks, the financials, the cyclicals will go up. And then in the second and third years, people go looking for value more down the market cap spectrum in the mid and smaller companies uh, where we have about 70% of the fund. Yeah. So obviously the, the, the crux UK special situations funds done very well this year. So it's up nearly 29% versus 17% from the IA or company sector. So clearly you, you've obviously managed to back some companies that have done well so can you just give me um sort of an overview of which stocks have actually been driving this performance yeah so there's two factors here i mean from a sector and a positioning of the fund we are sort of underweight the defensives um which don't tend to be special situations and we're overweight the sort of more cyclicals and the recovery type names so in those the likes of the hill and smiths aviva the, the insurance company and, and Vistry, which is a house builder, have seen really good recovery as the economy is improving. And then there's some sort of more uh, stock-specific specific stocks. So uh, a stock called Maxite has been great for us, which has gone to a NASDAQ IPO. So we, we sort of invest behind change, right? new products launched, uh, you know, new markets that are growing, or sometimes uh, companies with new management or changing their stock market listing. Maxite is very much that, that NASDAQ. 
We did very well and are continuing to do well and support Kistos, which is Andrew Austin, who did very well with a business called Rock Rose. Um, we backed it the same level as him at the pound, sort of, I think it was last December. Uh, they're trading up towards um, three pounds today, so that's clearly been great for us. IP Group, which is um, a university sort of intellectual property, um, they are spinning off a business called Oxford Nanopore, and that's been really quite quite strong for us this year. And then actually in this phase of the stock market, we have quite a few new issues. So um, companies such as Big Technology, Microlyze, and Dianobi have not been, as it were, household names, but um, they look like really interesting growth companies. Uh, and those, those, each, each of those three have done very well for us and, and in the fund. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the terms overweight and underweight at the start there. I know that some of our listeners are probably scratching their heads wondering what you mean by that. Could you sort of give a, a sort of a very basic explanation what those terms actually are describing? Yeah, so so our aim is is to be better than the UK stock market over a five year period, and um, there are various ways to measure the UK stock market. But it, but it's usually would would take the biggest companies, like the AstraZenecas and, and the HSBCs, and they might be four to five percent of of, a, of some kind of index around the UK. And so so when we when you add up all of those weightings in banks and pharmaceuticals and small companies. Uh, when we're overweight, we have more in various areas than, than the index would be. When we're underweight, we would have a lot less in things like the defensives that I mentioned, which would be you need kind of your Unilevers and Diageos where, where economic demand is, is fairly resilient, uh, whatever the economy. Yeah. So you, you've got a position in the sort of the newly listed advertising group, Dianomi. Uh, I guess some people might be familiar with that um, if they read um, you know, a, a you know, something like the Times or or the the Daily Mail website, and they scroll down and they suddenly see other stories that aren't written by those journalists and um, clickbait. I guess is a is is one way of describing it. What what I mean? What do you like about this business? Is it is it more than simply having um, you know the, the adverts or placing adverts in, in sort of on sort of very popular websites like that? So Dianomi historically has had really strong revenue growth and um, it's done all the difficult uh, things in terms of building a business, in terms of building its uh, advertising base and its, the publisher base it publishes with. Um, and it's got to the point where revenue growth now, sort of 25 to 30% that, that we are seeing, should convert really strongly in, into earnings. Um, and actually there's, there's a real... Uh, a need for what they do. So uh, we're seeing Apple and Google reducing cookies and these kind of things. And Dianomi is served you an advert that is relevant to the article that you might be reading. So so often that might be about, you know, if you're reading about financial markets, it will serve you an advert for a financial product rather than, you know, a flight to somewhere you don't want to go. Uh, and increasingly they, they're going into places uh, to a lifestyle type products rather than just financial products so they're extending their reach and they're getting more um, publishers so yesterday there was a, uh, a really good announcement for them partnering up with CNN business which you know and gradually when they've when they develop these relationships they've expanded so yes yesterday they were trading ahead of expectations profits ahead and I continue to see that um, over the next sort of 12 to 24 months the shares have been good but uh, we continue to, to own them yeah. So you've also got a stake in Marwin Value Investors. So 
That itself has investments in a series of cash shells or SPACs, as is perhaps better known today, as well as got some stakes in a couple of companies. Now, I know over the years it's, it has had some success. It, it backed the likes of Pepper Pig owner Entertainment One in its early days. But at the moment, the business doesn't seem to have the same hit rate for investments as it used to. Certainly remember its media cash shell a couple of years ago, Glue Networks, was a real flop. So what is it that you see in Marwin that the market doesn't? So, so Marwin um, Value Investors, that particular vehicle has investments in f- effectively five different um, sort of vehicles, if you like. Um, the biggest of which is a business called Zagona, which I knew very well. I used to own 10 or 15% of that in my previous uh, employment. Uh, we also know perhaps the second biggest a company called Advanced ADVT really well. And so in the round... Um, the value of the underlying investments is about 180 to 190p. Um, we bought the shares for pound and eight. I see that 180 to 190p rising because I have um, strong confidence in in, in the, the, the businesses that we know that are in there and their ability to improve. And also, yes, they do have some cash shells, but it's a good part of the economic cycle, perhaps, to go and back proven entrepreneurs to build businesses. And the, the final positive that I would say against... About your comments about Marwin is within this vehicle, management have gone from having um, a carried interest where they would make perhaps twenty percent of the upside of an investment to to owning shares and, and Marwin Value Investors, and that's important because um, when they own the shares, then if they invest in something, it goes down, then their holding goes down. If they just have an option or have the upside, um, then they don't share in any downside. So they'll be even more careful of what they invest in. I think it's a good point in the cycle. So we bought them for 108. I think they could trade up to 140 to 150 versus 180 to 190p. And I fully expect that um, the asset value will increase over the next 12 to 18 months. I, I guess the risk with anyone who's got a cash shell is that there's so many uh, other other cash shells around or SPACs around that, you know, they're looking to do deals. I certainly saw some stats that said, you know, there's, there's so many SPACs that are launched that still don't have an acquisition uh, ready to make. And, you know, will that hurt Marwin if they, you know, if there's too many people rushing around and um, they just can't get what they really want to sort of set out to do? I think it's about the specifics of the management teams. I mean, they have a number of management teams that they might back. And um, for me, there's a company, Advanced ADVT, which Marwin owns has staken. But we also own that in the UK Special Sits Trust. The lady behind that, Vin Maria, um, has been really successful with three quoted entities before in the software space. She's put £17 million pounds of her own money into Advanced ADVT at the same level as Marwin and, and we did. Um, and yes, there is competition against private equity, but there, there can be ways around that. And, um, you know, just only enter into thinking about buying a business if you can get an exclusive deal where you're not in competition. Um, and, you know, I am confident that, you know, if there is a prospect of overpaying for something because it's competition, it will take a bit longer. But I think that's the right thing to do within Maria because I think she will buy well and she will improve it over a number of years. Well, brilliant. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So finally this week, we have the anticipated return of Jenny Owen and Money Madness, fresh from her incredible achievement award-winning Jenny Owen. Congratulations, Jenny. 
Oh my gosh, thanks, Danny. <laughs> well, we spoke about it last week, so I felt that we had to congratulate you this week on the podcast. Um, you have been looking at a pretty fantastic beach hut, but the price tag, uh, frankly, it's eye-watering. Yeah, so summer might be coming to a close, but many people are still heading to the beach and one couple are benefiting from this. Britain's most expensive beach hut has gone up for sale and it's costing the same as a six-bedroom house in some parts of the UK. The hut is located in Christchurch Harbour in Dorset and can sleep up to six people. The 13-foot by 10-foot cabin has no mains electricity, loo or washing facilities, but it's currently up for sale for a staggering £575,000. It's a superb-looking spot on a sandy beach and boasts a mezzanine and kitchen, and similar huts um, have recently sold for £325,000, which still surprises me. But asking prices have leapt as people crave the fresh sea air. In 2002, the cabin sold for £73,000, but have steadily increased in value over time. But probably the maddest thing about this is you can't have a mortgage on a beach hut, so only cash buyers can purchase this pricey but luxurious slice of seaside property. That is some pretty heavy inflation right there. Absolutely mad. And it has it has increased obviously really gradually over time, but still it's for such a it does look really sweet to be fair, but I don't know if it's worth nearly six hundred thousand pounds. It's got some pretty amazing views, but that still mm. is a lot of money. Yeah. But I suppose if you have that money lying around in cash, then you know, maybe the view is worth paying for. Danny, are you gonna be going for it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if they'll accept Monopoly money, I am right there. (laughs) So that's everything for this week. Thanks a lot for listening. Next week, Dan and I will be bringing you the latest market news, but also more from fund manager Richard Penny on what his outlook is for markets next year. So we'll see you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.